We're talking about challenges on the road to discipleship. We are in Luke chapter 9, and these look like a bunch of disconnected stories. Uh, the disciples here, for example, can't cast out a demon. Jesus comes and does that. Jesus makes comments like, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem to be crucified, and the disciples don't know what that is. They want to call down fire from heaven and Samaria. It looks like a bunch of disconnected stories. But what holds all of these together, are these are all challenges to discipleship. And this is what it looks like. Uh, the disciples uh, are just one, one core among us. Think about as Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, you have to think of it in almost like, almost like a bullseye, almost like a series of rings. Right at the core, you have the disciples. You have a few women. Outside of that, 12 and maybe 15 people, you have 72 disciples. Then you have a couple hundred somewhat committed people, maybe a couple thousand onlookers. So there's like a circles of rings around Jesus. They're journeying to Jerusalem and along the way, they're coming across a lot of challenges in their life. And uh, we're identifying what these are and showing how we find strength in Christ, just like the disciples do as challenges come their way. Now, here's the three that we identified the last couple of weeks. First of all, unbelief. As you journey with Jesus, the very first thing you have to encounter is your own unbelief. You almost become surprised by your own unbelief. And that's what happens with the disciples. They can't cast out a demon. Jesus identifies that weakness as a lack of faith. And he comes and rescues them. The second one is confusion with the ways of God. We talked about this one last week. Jesus says in verse 43 and 44 that the Son of Man is going to die on a cross, be raised on the third day. The disciples are completely confused about what this means. They're confused about the ways of God. I'll simply say this. If you're confused, if you ever get confused about what God is up to in the world, you're in good company. If it can happen to Peter, James, and John, it can happen to you and me. We have to deal with our own confusion. The third thing was pride. The disciples start to argue who's the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus sets in front of them a little child and says, you need to become like this child in order to enter the kingdom. And Jesus here is helping them through the issue of pride. And so today... We want to close this little mini-series out with three more challenges. The final three challenges on the road to discipleship, rivalry, retaliation, and distraction. And we'll take these in turn. I'll read the passages as we go. First of all, let's notice rivalry, verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, let's start as we talk about rivalry. Let's, let's, talk, let's get kind of a macro view. Christ calls the church to avoid two postures. The posture of assimilation and the posture of tribalism. Right? Years ago, I read a book it's called Chameleon Christianity, and it talked about the dangers of these two extremes. That the church has to be very careful not to become the chameleon. The chameleon represents just blending into the world, just believing what the world believes without reservation. We don't want to blend in. Paul says things like, do not be conformed to the world. Jesus tells the church, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, if the salt, he says, loses its savior, if you become like the world, what good are you to the world? So as Christians, we need to make sure we're not chameleons. We're not just trying to become like the world. But the second mistake Christian can make is we can become very tribalistic. 
where the chameleon represents that becoming like the world, tribalism is represented, at least in the book here, by the muskox. The muskox is one that when it feels threatened, it just starts to kick everything in its sight, you know? They kind of make little muskox ghettos, and they kick out the outsider. They don't want to be bothered by new ideas. Anything that's a nuisance, they'll go and attack. Tribalism is also a dangerous posture for Christians to have. By the way, if you carefully read the law, the Old Testament Mosaic law, God warns Israel against both of these, right? There are many passages where God tells Israel, don't be like the world. The nations are like this, don't be like that. But they don't want to be tribalistic either. For example, the law says when an outsider or a stranger comes your way, treat them with like superlative hospitality. Love them. Help them along the way. Don't be tribalistic. Don't be the chameleon, but don't be the muskox either. And Christians are constantly pushing back against these two. In your workplace, my guess is you're constantly pushing back against these two. You don't want to be like the world, but you don't want to like attack everything and die on every hill either. The one we're dealing with in this passage, where the disciples are attacking someone, trying to stop them from casting out a demon in Jesus' name because they're not identifying with the disciples' brand, is tribalism or rivalry. Rivalry. Rivalry is competition for the same objective. Competition with other sincere believers. And unfortunately, in the history of Christianity, Christians have had a lot of rivalry in certain spaces. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you remember this? I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Peter, right? What is that? That's rivalry. And Paul has to come along in 1 Corinthians and say, you're all on the same team, stop trying to box each other out. And then, of course, by the way, in 1 Corinthians, you have a very pious group. They say, I'm with Jesus. Like, that's going to trump everything, you know? It sounds so good on the surface, but even there, they're trying to use the name of Jesus to box out the other believers, and Paul even deals with them. In the book of Philippians... Paul says there are some preachers that are preaching the right message, but they're doing it out of rivalry with him. That's the word he uses. And so again, Paul deals with rivalry. Uh, In Philippians, I plead with you, Eutyche and Syntyche, be of the same mind. Don't be rivals. You're on the same team. Now here's the irony. This, This passage comes on the heels of what? This is so interesting. Remember when Jesus takes a little child and puts the little child in the middle? What's the point of that? The point of that is receive people in my name. And what are they doing here? They're boxing out somebody in Jesus' name. It's like they totally missed the message Jesus just gave them. John and Peter and the apostles here say, we are cutting him off, prohibiting him. By the way, the word prohibit means to aggressively stop. Almost like in basketball where someone plays defense on someone and they're just, you know, just constantly sticking to that other person. That's what's happening in this passage. They're prohibiting, prohibiting, prohibiting. They won't get out of the guy's face. They're just really obstructing his ministry. And so Jesus, they say, we stopped him because he's not one of us. They are trying to protect, not the gospel. And they're not trying to protect the glory of Jesus. They're trying to protect their own brand. In other words, if our hands aren't on it, it's not right. If it's not done under the name of our church sign, it's not right. That's what they're saying here. And the jealousy here is overflowing. I'll speculate here. You can speculate with me. Is it possible that they're actually jealous? 
Remember one of the passages we dealt with last week or the week before? They tried to cast out a demon in Jesus' name and nothing happened. Now they look over and one is what? This guy's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Is it possible there's a hint of jealousy in here? And therefore they go and try to stop the man. So their rivalry here, competing for the same objective. More important congregation than knowing who is on our team is knowing the mission of the gospel. Knowing the direction we're supposed to go. Not to box people out there that are doing things in the name of Christ with sincerity. And the goal of RBC is not to protect our brand. It's not simply to grow the church, but to see Christ exalted and the mission of Jesus advanced. And that's the message Jesus is giving the 12. By the way, there's a beautiful example of this in the book of Galatians. One of the great rivalries on the surface in the, ancient, in the early church was between Peter and Paul. Everybody pitched Peter against Paul because Paul was a minister to the Gentiles Peter went to the Jews. And so they thought, it's Peter against Paul. I'm with Peter. I'm with Paul. They kind of line up behind those two. But in the book of Galatians, when Peter and Paul meet, what do they do? They don't fight with each other. They give each other the right hand of fellowship. And they minister with each other. In other words, you're in that place of the vineyard. I'm in that part of the vineyard. We're on the same team. Let's encourage each other on. Not just trying to box each other out. The spiritual rivalry is the muskox. Just tries to attack everything that looks strange. Maybe attack ideas that we don't really understand. I love the story of George Whitfield and John Wesley. Whitfield and Wesley were two famous British evangelists uh, back in the mid, what, 18th century. They were two of the biggest names in Christianity. Anywhere you went in the English-speaking world, if you said Wesley or Whitfield, everybody knew who you were talking about. Their sermons would be published, and they would be sent out overseas into the United States, down into South Africa, all the way around the world, their stuff would be published. They would draw crowds that would be in excess of like 10,000 people. To this day, we still are not quite sure how they spoke to that many people. They had some way of amplifying their voices over the top of the crowd where people could hear all the way over the hills and all the way back. These are two huge names. And it became a bitter rivalry between them, at least on the surface in people's minds. Whitfield was of the Calvinistic stripe. Wesley was of the Arminian stripe. And people started to make a big deal about this and kind of pitch one against the other. Well, I'm with Wesley. Well, I'm with Whitfield. And try to get each other to attack each other. And Whitfield, when he visited the United States, he was asked a question by one of his followers. Do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? And Whitfield said, no. To which the follower of Whitfield kind of put a little smirk on his face. And Whitfield continued, John Wesley is such a godly man. He'll be so close to the throne of glory and I'll be so far away. I don't even think I'll get a glimpse of him. I love that little story. <laughs> we are different. We do have different ideas. They're really inconsequential to the gospel. And therefore, therefore, we not only expect to see each other in heaven, no doubt he will be closer to the throne than me. I love how Whitfield in that little story just undermines the spirit of rivalry. That's what God calls us to do. Not to lay aside everything we believe by no means, but to avoid the muskock posture, to avoid the tribalism, and to put aside the rivalry Realize more important than knowing, quote-unquote, who's on the team, 
So what's the mission of the gospel? And how do we move forward together both in the church, in the community, and in the world? I love that we could talk about this point after watching that wonderful video that Anna introduced to us about working together for the sake of the gospel. That with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not in rivalry with them. On the con- contrary, we are in unison and one in heart with them. Number two is retaliation, verse 51. Again, it looks disconnected, but it's not. Here's a challenge to discipleship. When a days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go on to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, this is Jesus, who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven to consume them? But he turned to them and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Let's take this in a few steps. This one is a little bit comical, I admit it. You know, like 2,000 years later when you're reading it, the village rejects the disciples, and, you know, the disciples look at Jesus and say, should we call down fire to consume them? And Jesus is like, face, face palm, you know? Uh, what we have here is retaliation, and this is a temptation on the road of discipleship. Let me give you kind of a couple steps as we think about this point, maybe a ramp to the main point we want to get to. The first thing we have to say is this. Christians, as followers of Christ, we are often called to venture out of the safe space into the potential unknown, into a potential world of opposition. Uh, Back in the first century, if you were a Jewish rabbi and you were having followed by 12 people, we know from history that you would go, if you're going from Galilee to Jerusalem, you would go around Samaria. That's the pattern the rabbis took. They would go around Samaria. They went around Samaria for a lot of reasons, even though it was a little bit of a further walk. Number one, nobody wants to do business in Samaria because the, the, the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans is so much that the Jewish rabbis just don't want to deal with it. The Samaritans and the Jews had little proverbs about not interacting with each other, not doing business with each other, not even shaking hands or bowing to each other. The conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans is so heavy That in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, she looks at Jesus when he asks for a drink and says, why are you even talking to me? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That was the common culture of the day. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, which takes place one chapter after this? It's not just somebody doing a nice thing for someone else. It's the Samaritan helping the Jewish person. That's the punchline of the parable. The Jews and the Samaritans have no dealing with each other. This is centuries deep. This is Hatfield and McCoy type stuff, right? You always go around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. But what does the text say here? It tells us Jesus takes his disciples through Samaria. Jesus here is calling his disciples out of the safe space into the world. And that's the story of Christianity. Christianity is not about finding our own comfort. It's not about finding the safest space we can. But a lot of times God leads us into some challenging waters. Challenging at work. Challenging in a community. Challenging in different parts of the world. Like the video that we saw. The whole story, you know, of Christianity. If you think about the Abrahamic covenant. What does God do? He comes to Abraham and says what? Go. Get up. Get out of your father's tents. Get out of your father's land. I mean, the most comfortable thing you can do is stay in your father's basement, right? 
But he looks at Abraham and says, get up and go out. I'm putting you on an adventure into the real world. And he's going to journey and sojourn for his whole life looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. God comes to Jonah. What does he say? Get up. Go. Go into Nineveh. Nineveh is the land of hostility. In Nineveh, they would, they would, they would literally hang people up on signposts that offended them. They'd crucify him and put him up. It's a dangerous part of the world. But he tells Jonah to go out. Peter is culturally uncomfortable. In the book of Acts, he visits Simon the Tanner. I mean, Peter's brought up in a good Jewish first century home. You don't get involved with dead animals and things like that. That's unclean. Where does he end up? At a tanner's house. I imagine he's walking around not wanting to touch the furniture, not wanting to touch the utensils, because that's all unclean to him. And it's only a chapter later. Get this. There's only one place in the Bible I know that you find the same story back to back to back. You know what it is? It's Peter visiting Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Back to back to back, that story is told in the book of Acts. That is Peter being very uncomfortable in the house of a Gentile. He enters in, though, because that's God's will. That is Peter going out of a safe space into the unknown, into something that's very new for him. And Jesus here is telling the disciples that that's where we're going. We're not going around Samaria. We're going through Samaria. This is the gospel story. Jesus sets aside his comfort, and what does he do? He breaks into this lost and dying world. And that's the pattern we're seeing here. To go through Samaria means we set aside our comforts and we follow God's will even in the difficult spaces. Number two, the common response towards rejection, the common response towards uh, people rejecting us or hurting us is what? Anger and retaliation. Anger and retaliation. Now, we're going to misread this passage if you think this is just inhospitable. This is not the disciples showing up at a restaurant and kind of being, you know, given bread instead of meat or something like that. This is a major act of bigotry in the first century. The disciples go to prepare the way for Jesus, and when it says that they would not make preparations for them, that means the Samaritans are saying, you're not staying here, you're not buying anything here. If you hit this village, you walk straight through and don't say hi to anybody in this town. This is a major act of bigotry. And so the disciples, two of them, James and John, the sons of thunder, I wonder if they get their name from here, they say, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? Now, where would they get an idea like that? I'll tell you where they got it. There are two places you find prophets calling down fire from heaven in the Old Testament. One is by Moses, and the other one is by Elijah, and they just saw the transfiguration, which has who? Moses and Elijah. It's in their minds. (laughs) And they're thinking, if it's good enough for Moses, it's good enough for us. (laughs) Should we call fire down from heaven to consume them? The reflex, the the default response of of our fallen hearts is often retaliation when people reject us or they reject our ideas. A lot of times we say things like, I, you know, I just go with my gut. It's like the worst thing you can do. Go with your, that's what the, that's what, Peter's doing, John's doing, he's going with his gut. Instead, Jesus says, step back. Step back and think for a minute. Now, if you read the King James, I'm going to give you the language, I'll quote it. 
Peter and uh, John and James say, shall we call down fire from heaven? And in the King James, Jesus looks at them and says, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. That's the old King James. Now, what does that mean? That is Jesus' way of telling James and John, the Samaritans are not in the way of our ministry. The Samaritans are our ministry. We are not here to take them out. We are here because of them. They're not in a way of what God has called us to do. They are who God has called us to do. And we need to approach the world the same way. When we feel that anger, we feel like retaliating, co-worker in the next cubicle does something, neighbor does something, especially if they're hostile towards our faith, that's where we have to say, we know not what manner of spirit we are of. That that person is not in the way of what God has called me to do. They are who God has called me to do. And that's what Jesus communicates here. Now, I want to talk about this last point, which is hope. Hope. The disciples here are going to learn that the boundaries of God's work in grace are much wider than they think. And I imagine are even wider than you and I are thinking right now. We don't have time to go all the way through this, but I'm just going to read you a couple of verses out of Acts chapter 8. But don't lose the context, right? James and John, the disciples, they're all going through Samaria. They're rejected. I mean, really rejected with an act of bigotry. They want to call down fire from heaven. Now I want to read Acts chapter 8. Just listen as I read. Then those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip, they saw the signs he performed. They all played close attention, and there was great joy in that city. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. After they further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. That's interesting, isn't it? The same group that blocks them out just a few months later is rejoicing now in the gospel, just like Peter and just like John. It's good that they didn't call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans, isn't it? Because they'd be worshiping with them in about four months. <laughs> the disciples learn the boundaries of God's work and grace are much wider than the disciples suppose. And let you and I never lose hope. Because we never know what God is doing in people's hearts. The person that is most hostile to you very well may be the person sitting next to you in the pew in a month to come. Worshiping side by side in the church with you, both of you, with a renewed spirit in reconciliation in Christ. The enemy has been made friend through the power of the gospel. We have hope in Jesus. The third thing we want to point out is distractions. Distractions. And Jesus here gives us three stories. I'll read the passage. Listen for the three little illustrations. And they all have to do with distractions and priorities. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have air of the nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those that are at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, the very first thing I want us to see is three times in this passage, people come up to Jesus and say, I will follow, I will follow, I will follow. The reason I point this out is I don't want this one to go under the radar. There is something strongly attractive about Christ and about Christianity. Strangely attractive. To the point where people want to know more about it. Don't let this one fall under your radar. It's obvious there are challenges to being a disciple of Christ. I mean, they just tried to call down fire from heaven. They, they understand the animosity that's growing against Jesus. Despite that, people still want to know who Jesus is. The religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, but Nicodemus comes at night. And some would say the message of Christianity is morally restricted, but the pimps and the prostitutes are coming into the kingdom. Think for a minute that Christianity, because of the death of Jesus, is about to put the temple out of business because there's only one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The Jewish priests in Jerusalem have every reason to squash the message of Jesus. It's going to strike their very livelihood. You know what happens in Acts chapter 6? Many priests come to Jesus. That's powerful stuff. In other words, they're saying, let it strike the foundation of my vocation. He's the true and living God and I'm following him. There's something powerful in Christianity. Becoming a Christian, even in a dangerous space. You know, 20 years ago in Iran, there were five to 10,000 Christians, that was it. Five to 10,000 Christians. 20 years later, you know how many Christians there are in Iran today? They're numbering about a million. There's something, even in a very difficult place for Christianity, I mean, the flower here is growing in the, in the desert somehow, isn't it? There's something attractive about Christianity. And when people want to know more about Jesus, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't become the salesman. That's, that's interesting. What does he say? He says, no one that looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus, I want to follow you. Let me just go bury my father. Let the dead bury their own. In other words, Jesus almost makes it hard for people to follow him. I would never evangelize. You wouldn't evangelize this way, but Jesus evangelizes this way. Where when people want to follow him, he never waters down what that discipleship looks like. And frankly, neither should the church. We are not called to be salesmen. We're called to proclaim the message of Christ. That's what Jesus does here. So here's the three stories we find. First of all, there's a stranger in a strange land. A certain man comes to Jesus. We don't know who he is in Luke. Matthew tells us he's a scribe. He's likely a Pharisee. And says, I want to follow you. Again, not all the religious elites rejected Jesus. That's a mistake. A lot of them came to Christ. And he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does it mean the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean Jesus is homeless, although it might mean that. It doesn't mean he physically doesn't have the place to lay his head, though I don't doubt that was true at certain points. This is old rabbinic language here. <clears throat> the rabbis were received all throughout the countryside, everywhere they went. <clears throat> they were part of the establishment. And so a rabbi would be highly regarded, he'd be respected, <clears throat> People would be enthusiastic to follow rabbis. If a rabbi came into your home, it would be a privilege. When Jesus says, 
The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's looking at these, this man saying, you are enthusiastically ignorant. The other rabbis you know, they're going to be very well received. I am not going to be received by the establishment. And that would prove itself true as he ends up on the cross. There's also an irony here that we should point out. Listen to the language. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't say, I have nowhere to lay my but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man does not just mean Jesus was human, though he was human, right? He was God-man. Son of Man is an Old Testament apocalyptic term. And if you read the book of Daniel, the Son of Man breaks into this world. He rides in on the clouds. He's a conquering hero. He is the Lord over the whole creation The Son of Man, when you hear the Son of Man in the first century, it has the idea of a conqueror that owns everything. You hear the irony? The Son of Man, who owns everything, has nowhere to lay his head. This is a Son of Man like they've never considered. At times, Jesus is saying, you're going to feel like a stranger in a strange land where the establishment is not necessarily going to well receive you when you follow me. Even even in times of prosperity, like the book of Daniel, Daniel was still a stranger in a strange land. How's this? Even when you're the monarch, like Esther, you're going to feel like a stranger in a strange land. Following Jesus sometimes feels like you're a stranger in a strange land. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, what does that mean? That means your permanent home is not necessarily here. It's with me. He also gives a story about breaking cultural taboos. Verse 59. Another said, follow me. Jesus said, well, he said, let me go first bury my father. Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, some people believe that the father is almost dead here and the son is waiting for his inheritance. That's one interpretation. You ever see Martin Chuzzlewit? You ever read Martin Chuzzlewit? Oh, that's a hilarious Dickens story. Uh, there's an old guy with a lot of money, and everybody's following him around, just waiting for him to die so they can get the inheritance. And Dickens has a way of just spinning this into a comedy, you know. That's one interpretation of this passage. But the right one, I think, is exactly what's staring at us in the face. His father has just died. He just wants to go do the funeral. Jesus, with a little bit of hyperbole here, says, let the dead bury the dead, go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, this is breaking a cultural taboo. If you were a son... This is like the one thing you had to do in that culture because it would be considered pretty disrespectful just to ignore the funeral of your father. You're the one that's supposed to make preparations for the body of your father and for the funeral. Let the dead bury the dead. In other words, sometimes you're going to be misunderstood. Sometimes I'm going to call you to break a cultural taboo. And some people aren't going to understand. You're going to feel like you let people down. The last one is looking forward with no regrets. Verse 61. Another said, I will follow you. Let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus, again, with hyperbole, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. You drivers know what I'm talking about. You're driving the car. You turn around to maybe check a blind spot. You look up and you've already swerved a couple inches, right? That's the idea. This is plowing language where somebody's plowing down a row, you know, down a row, and you turn around, and when you turn around, you touch just a little bit, the oxen starts to move, and before you know it, your row has done this. And so Jesus says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Like Lot's wife looking back, like Judas looking back. This is pretty hard words for discipleship. Now, all that to say, I'm going to tie it up here, 
when you look at these three stories, the word that we're trying to grab for is the word priorities. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying disrespect your father. He would never say that. The fifth commandment tells you to respect your father. He's not saying you can't say goodbye to your family if you're going somewhere. Literally look back. What he's saying is your priorities need to be such that I have first place in your life. Sometimes we just have general distractions in our discipleship. Not bad things. These are all good things. But we're making the good things the most important thing when God needs to have first place in our lives. Let me close with Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want you to notice the part I underlined there. A lot of us understand what it means to lay aside sin. And, you know, like, like don't sin. You know, don't do things out of God's will. But that's not, there's two categories here. There's sin, and there's something here called weight. Now, what is every weight that easily besets us? Weights are things that are not inherently bad. They're just major distractions in your walk with God. Think about when you get into the swimming pool, if you still have your shoes on or a sweatshirt on or something like that, how hard it is to swim. Or maybe ankle weights while you run. They're things that he says, lay them aside, take those off. Be like Peter, strip off the garment before you jump into the water. In other words, make Christ your first priority. I once read a story about Charles Schwab, the banker. Uh, He was a a figure in Andrew Carnegie's steel empire. And Schwab became very frustrated about not getting things done during the day and not making good use of his time. And so Carnegie apparently referred to him to a, a specialist that would help with priorities. And he told Carnegie, uh, told Schwab, he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to take the top six things you need to do today and make sure you do as much of those as you can. That's all you can do. He said, the next day, reprioritize and do these six things, he said, and just try that for 30 days. And apparently Charles Schwab thought that would get him nowhere. But the expert said, I want you to do that for 30 days. Just do it for 30 days. And at the end of the 30 days, you can pay me or not pay me what you think I'm worth. And at the end of the 30 days, Schwab, after learning how to prioritize, found his time used so wisely, he sent him a $25,000 check, which is a lot of money in those days. The point is priority. There are so many things pulling on Schwab or any of us at any moment, spiritually pulling on us and pulling us away from Christ, that Jesus says, make me your number one priority. Every day you wake up, I'm at the top of the list. Seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness and all these things will be added.